Hello friends, Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Erie Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. Seeing the lands of the Bible with your own eyes will change the way you read the Bible, and thus, it'll change your life. See what I mean by visiting waynestyles.com tours. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In this episode, we ask and answer a question so relevant to our day. Why does a good God allow such evil? I mean, if God's all-powerful, He could get rid of evil. If God is all-loving, He would get rid of evil, right? So what's the problem? Great questions. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. I'm convinced that um, some company could make a killing off of greeting cards if they would have a section devoted to dysfunctional families. I don't, you know, sometimes I'll go to Hallmark or I'll go to, you know, Kroger and to buy a birthday card or a, a, you know, other type of card. And, you know, I'll read these things that, that just don't fit. Uh, maybe you've seen, the, seen cards like this that say, you know, to the greatest father in the world. Or, son, I couldn't be more proud of you. You know, or, mom, you're my best friend. Or, you know, something for your sister. You, you just think, well, what if they weren't? You know, what if, what if your dad was kind of an angry jerk? What if, what if your mom abused you? What if your brother stole the family inheritance and, and ran off? What if your son's a rebel? You know, where are the cards for reality? And instead, sometimes we just feel like we're forced to apply a situation, uh, a card that really doesn't fit. Just once, I'd love to see a, a card that said, uh, Mom, you blew it, but I love you anyway. Happy Mother's Day. You, know, you won't see it. None of us have the heart to send anything like that. The best we often do are just find the blank cards and uh, try to scrawl something in there that's encouraging. But, you know, with cards, it's that way. Sometimes you feel like you're forced to apply a card that doesn't fit with reality. Sometimes I think we feel the same way with the Bible. That we'll turn to a passage and read something and think, well, Lord... This talks about how loving you are. Uh, You flip the page and you read something about our merciful God or our just God or a God who cannot tolerate evil. And then you flip on the news and think, well, Lord, this doesn't fit with reality. How are we supposed to read and understand the scriptures when it doesn't seem to mesh with the life that we're living. There's a tension. There is a tension there. 
I think sometimes the senseless evil that we see in our world and that we see God allowing in our world is, um, forces us to ask questions. For example, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. The prophet Habakkuk wrote these words more than 26 centuries ago. And yet they could have been written this week. The tension that I described with God's word and our lives is not new to us. It's not new to the United States. It was true back in the time of Habakkuk. In fact, it's always been true. It's a tension that we as believers in a fallen world look at and struggle with. Habakkuk looked around at his culture and said, Lord, I'm living in a nation that sins openly and without shame, and you just watch it. You're not doing anything about it. To quote Habakkuk, he says there is violence, iniquity, wickedness, destruction, strife, contention, and perverted justice. And he asks, how long are you going to ignore my help? Why do you make me look at evil and you just sit there and look at it too? Habakkuk had a problem with God's inactivity. Well, I love how the the theologians Calvin and Hobbes put it. Look at this cartoon. I think we've got it there for you. Calvin's sitting on the swing and... Mo comes along and says, get off the swing, Twinkie. Calvin says, forget it, Mo. wait your turn. And then the next scene, Mo gets him off, punch, pow, gets him off the swing. And in the final frame, Calvin's laying on the ground and he says, it's hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by bolts of lightning. <laughs> you know, we chuckle, but isn't that true? Boy, isn't that true. And all of a sudden we're echoing what Habakkuk said so long ago. The thought goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he could get rid of evil. If he truly was all-loving and good, he would get rid of evil. And so, because there's evil, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. What? What's the problem? Well, the solution, or the answer to that, according to the atheist, is simple. There is no God. The agnostic, of course, you know, he or she is not real sure. The deist says, well, yes, God created all, but then kind of sat back and folded his arms and is just waiting, sometimes wringing his hands. But for us, for theists who believe in what the Bible says, What are our answers to that? How can a good God allow all this evil?
Well, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. In theology, this tension is called the theodicy. Theodicy, from two words, theos, which means God, and dike, was a word that means uh, to be just or right, justice, righteousness. It's the kind of tension of, of trying to, to bring about an explanation of how God can be right in the presence of all the evil in the world. One of the most serious challenges that we Christians face is this tension. And the answers aren't easy answers. They are, they are struggles. I mean, we, we saw from Habakkuk's words that it's not, not a new struggle. But thankfully, Peter devotes a large section to the, his final book on this very issue. And so let's look at some of this. 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 3 as Peter is writing about evil people. Verse 3, he says, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What he's saying is that uh, God's justice, God's judgment of evil, isn't in neutral. It's not, uh, God is not firing blanks. But it, it's not idle in the sense that he's, uh, he's got the gun cocked, as it were, but he, he's not pulling the trigger. It's ready, but it's not happening yet. Peter says that God's judgment of evil is not asleep. And he gives several examples to prove this in the next verses that follow. Look at the next verse, 4, and notice what it starts with. It starts with the word for. In other words, he's explaining what he just said. For, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. What's Peter doing? He gives several examples here to show that God has never been soft on evil. He's never been soft on sin. God has a track record of judging it and judging it very harshly. Evil was judged in the fallen angels. God created the angels good, but they chose to sin. Some of them did. Which brings up a good question, where did evil come from? If God created everything, where did evil come from? Did God create evil? It's a great question. Why didn't God just create us all to where we would just choose to do good, and that's it? But if you think about that question in and of itself, it's sort of a contradiction, because if you're going to choose good, there has to be an alternative. 
When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them perfect in every way. But he also created them with the potential to sin. He didn't create them sinners. He didn't create evil. But he created its potential so that when Adam and Eve chose to obey God, it would be a legitimate choice. If there isn't an alternative, then it really isn't a choice. We're just robots. We're automatons. We're puppets. The choice is there. And angels, some of the angels, chose against it, chose to rebel. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do the same thing, and they fell for it. And as a result, bred an entire race of humanity that are sinners. And we see this worked out to where it was so bad, finally God had to judge the entire world with this great flood that we read about. In fact, in Genesis says that every inclination of every person was only evil all the time. That's how bad it had gotten, except for Noah and his family. And then that was global. Then on a more local level, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. So you see, whether it's angels in the angelic realm, or whether it's global judgment in the flood, or whether it's a local judgment in Sodom, God's never been soft on sin. He's never been tolerant of evil. And yet in the midst of this judgment, God also had mercy. He rescued Noah. And he also rescued Lot. Look at verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and then Peter gives a little parenthesis here, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. So here you have Lot being rescued out of godless Sodom, but we have a little description here of what life was like for Lot living there. He was tormented. He was a righteous man living among godless people, and it tormented his soul. We can relate to that, can't we? Think about the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, and we struggle with this, just like Lot did. So there's not one of us here that isn't appalled by the carnality of our culture, Peter tells us God didn't spare angels, God didn't spare the ancient world, God didn't spare Sodom. God did rescue Noah and Lot. Then verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You see both, both sets of people there. That God knows in this evil situation how to rescue the righteous, and how to keep the wicked under punishment for the day of judgment. Evil will eventually be destroyed. So the question then is, well, what's God waiting for? Why in the world do we have to continue waiting? I think it was Charlie Chaplin one time was at a party. I read about this. I don't remember where, but... Chaplin stood up and he said, uh, there is no God and I can prove it. 
So he stands up and he says, if there's a God, may he strike me with lightning. Well, nothing happened. And he says, see, there's no God. Now, that sounds real convincing, but you think about why does God have to jump to all of a sudden our tests and our standards for him proving himself? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't at all. But yet, that's the kind of mindset that I think our culture often has when we say, or they ask, prove that there's a God. Or why isn't God doing something? There's something terribly arrogant that demands that God act in our way and in our timetable. You're in chapter 2. Look one chapter over, chapter 3. Peter now gives a reason why God waits to judge this evil world. Why God waits to judge the evil world. 2 Peter 3, look down in verse 3. Peter says this, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, that was Chaplin's problem. He is one of these mockers, as it were. They say, look, if God's going to come, why didn't he come now? What's he waiting for? Where's, where's this coming? They determined that since God had not yet come, that he never was going to come. I remember back in 2003, after the United States attacked Iraq, the morning after the, the attack, um, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Donald, Secretary of Offense, Defense, For, Freudian slip there. Um, anyway, Donald Rumsfeld was asked by a reporter about the, quote, apparent failure to follow the war plan. And Rumsfeld told the reporter, he said, excuse me, but I'm not sure you know the war plan. It's a great illustration of our accusations often to God, isn't it? God, why are you failing of the plan of destroying evil in the world? And God says, wait, wait, I'm not sure you know the plan. Did Did I give you the plan? It's sort of like what happened in the book of Job when all the suffering came on Job's life. And Job's going, wait a minute, God, and throws a penalty flag. He said, Lord, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. I'm a righteous man. I haven't done anything wrong. Why is this happening? And, of course, the Lord doesn't answer the why question, but asks Job questions, a lot of questions, all about the natural realm, none of which Job could answer. And the essence of the point is basically, Job, if you can't answer any of these questions about the natural world in which you live, why are you questioning me about the spiritual realm which you can't even see? If you can't understand on the natural realm, there's no way you're going to understand on the spiritual realm. You don't have the plan. You know, I just read the opening verses of Habakkuk, but Habakkuk goes on to basically say, Lord, why are you allowing all this evil in in my culture, in Judah? And God says, well, I tell you what I'm doing. I am doing something, but if I tell you, 
you won't believe it. Habakkuk says, try me. So God tells him, Habakkuk says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. He goes from having a problem with what God isn't doing to having a problem with what God is doing. So no matter what, we don't like his plan. Even if he does reveal it, it is so far above us that we can't fathom what the Lord is doing. You see, these mockers that Peter refers to here misses it when they claim that God has done nothing because Peter shows that this is the wrong idea. God has not done nothing since the beginning of creation. We read in chapter 2 several examples of how God got directly involved and judged sin. And Peter gives another reminder of that now in verse 5, 2 Peter 3, verse 5. He says, For when they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See, everything hasn't continued the same since the day of creation. God has intervened many times. The flood, just one example. And this present evil world that we live in is being kept for a future judgment. And someone might say, well, if God has intervened, if God has shown that he will get involved and that he will judge evil, again, what's he waiting for? I mean, it's been a long time since the flood. It's been a long time since Sodom. Why is is God just taking this big, long break? Why didn't he get involved again? Why doesn't God judge the evil in the world? And to a person that says that, you could say, you know what, that is a great idea. Why don't we start with you? Hey everybody, Wayne here. This podcast has been going for months now. And if you've not left a review, you know, your review could really help other busy people benefit from this content. That's because one of the main ways that new listeners find the Live the Bible podcast is through listener reviews. So would you take just a couple of minutes right now to leave a review? You can do so at waynestyles.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. And now, back to the message. Why doesn't God judge the evil in the world? And to a person that says that, you could say, you know what, that is a great idea. Why don't we start with you? Well, they say, well, I don't mean me. I mean all the other people in the world, the the people that are really evil, not me. You see, the problem of evil in the world stems from the problem of evil within. That's the source of it. The Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, if there were only evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So if God were truly to get rid of all the evil in the world, he would have to get rid of all the people in the world because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Jeremiah wrote in chapter 17, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The problem of evil in the world comes from the problem of evil within. This, Peter tells us, is what God is waiting for. Look at verse 8, the very next verse. But, contrast, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is God waiting? We just read it. We just read it. He is allowing people the time to repent. See, God doesn't wait to judge the evil in the world because he's apathetic or because he's absent or he's not good or he's powerless. In fact, it's because of all those things he waits. It's because of his goodness and his grace and his mercy that he waits, providing time for people to repent. And he said that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Sometimes this is misread and misunderstood that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. That's not what he says. It's an example. It's a simile. It's a figure of speech showing the patience of God. Like for us a day, what we would consider waiting a day, it just drives us crazy to have to wait for something one day. For the Lord, that's like waiting a thousand years. He's got that much patience toward the godless people in the world to repent. So why does God allow evil? It's, it's a very simple answer, and it's a very sobering principle, and this is it. God allows evil so that you may choose good. God allows evil so that you may choose good, and ultimately, that you may choose Christ. I looked at the headlines of the New York Times last night and just pulled from it a few headlines. And here, here are a few that I saw. Five Dallas officers were killed as payback, police chief says. Another one. Former Alabama speaker sentenced to four years in prison. Another one. Ten more states sue the U.S. over transgender policy for schools. You know, I looked quite a bit, but I didn't see... The New York Times also reporting on the fact that yesterday as well, thousands of people across the world placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So we look at the news and we see the bad news and we think that's all there is. Oh, that's not all there is. We read 2 Peter chapter 3 to discover the other half of the story. Not only is God allowing all this evil in the world, but he's allowing it so that people will repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, one source I read said this, quote, Between two and seven million former Muslims have converted to Christianity in the past two decades. Between two and seven million. This is why God waits. Peter tells us that. This is why he's waiting. 
Now, keep your place in 2 Peter, we'll be back to it, and slip over to Romans chapter 2 real quick. Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, look at verse 4. Paul asks, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds individually. There are no group plans with God. It's all individual. That's a pretty sobering few verses, isn't it? God will render to every person according to his or her deeds. That means if you plan to stand before God one day and to show him all your good deeds as to why he should let you into heaven, it's going to be insufficient because along with your good deeds comes all of your sin and God can't tolerate sin in his presence. What are you going to do with that? Well, the solution is Romans and much of the New Testament goes on to describe is that Jesus has paid for our sins. He's died on the cross for our sins, and he's risen again to show that our sins have been paid for. The only way that you'll ever get into the presence of a God who is just and who is holy and who deals with sin in a way that we read that is, that is um, terrible is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. History has shown that the Lord has given extreme self-restraint. The likes of Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, and to an extent, you and me. But nothing compares to the restraint that God showed the day that he allowed Jesus to die on the cross. Can you think of any event in history more unjust than a righteous and holy man who had, who had never sinned to take on the sin of the entire human race in one fell swoop. That is evil. And yet, from the most evil event, God brought about the most righteous result of salvation for anyone who would believe. So when we think about the problem of evil in the world, this much is true. God took his own medicine, didn't he? He took his own medicine. It's the greatest irony in history that the problem of evil was solved by an act of evil. The most evil thing in all eternity turned out to be the one that provided the righteousness to anyone who would believe. Philip Yancey wrote, Suffering can never ultimately be meaningless because God himself has shared it. See, outside the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, there is no answer to the problem of evil. In fact, you could even boil that down to outside of the resurrection, there is no answer. Because if Jesus had simply died on the cross and not been raised, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we'd have no confidence at all. We would still be in our sins. The resurrection showed that our sins are paid for. Thanksgiving morning, 
back in 2003. Kathy answered the phone. We were both there in the living room. And uh, she answered the phone only to stare in silence for about 20 seconds without saying anything. And I kind of mouthed to her, what's wrong? And she covered the phone and she said, Wayne, it's the worst possible news about your mother. My mother was an alcoholic. I've uh, been married many times, several times. But at that point, was living alone in a, uh, a small trailer all by herself. And uh, she had just had one too many, you know, a couple days before, and she died. And uh, we went over there, and the, uh, the I'll never forget the, uh, the coroner, you know, pulling mom out and seeing her, seeing her dead. You know, that's not what I prayed for all the years that we struggled with her being an alcoholic. I had asked God, in fact, I have in my Bible, uh, in Luke, Luke 18, verse 1, I think we read that not but a few Sundays ago, on prayer that he showed them a parable that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And I have my mom's name written right there. I prayed constantly for mom, that she would repent, and that she would somehow turn her affection, you know, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, to not be filled with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That she turn from one source of control to the other, and that she would go on to disciple other women, who had that same struggle. But for some reason, a sovereign God said no. And you know, if this life is all there is to life, then we really got a bum deal out of it. As, as Paul would say elsewhere, if, if, if we live for this life only, we are most to be pitied. But we don't, do we? Mom had placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And so because of Jesus' resurrection, I'm confident that the end of her life is not the end of her life. It's just a pause. She will be resurrected, just like Jesus was, to live forever with him and um, not suffer the struggle. But you know, if, if we only focus on the evil that we see right now, if I only focus on that memory of what happened to mom, then uh, there's no hope. We can get so focused on the evil on the television, and it's legitimate to, to be concerned. But I'm saying that in addition to our concern for our country, in addition to our concern for our loved ones, those who don't know Jesus Christ, we've got to broaden that to remember that one day, in fact, any moment, the rapture can happen. And we will all be uh, resurrected into his presence, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And we'll live forever with him. And the evil that we're struggling with right now in our world will be gone for us. You're in Romans 2. Slip over real quick to Romans chapter 8. And let's take a deep breath of this perspective that I just talked about. Romans chapter 8, 
Romans 8, verse 28. Now, I know you know it, but look at it with me anyway. And, and look at it. Paul writes, We know, and we know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now this familiar verse is almost without power in our minds. It's so familiar, isn't it? It's almost like a cliche, especially when you look at permanent situations like I just described with my mom, and you've probably experienced as well in your life. Permanent situations like pain or death or mental handicap or divorce or some kind of physical constraint that you know will never change in this life. And we read Romans 8.28 that says God's causing this to work together for good. The problem sounds thin if we interpret God working all things for good as meaning good feelings or personal fulfillment or reasons that we'd like to see or expect to see in this life. But Romans 8.28 comes with a context. It's a great context. In fact, the very next verse helps us understand what the good is that is the source of this promise, that's the goal of this promise. Romans 8.28 began, and we know. There's the main verb. Verse 29 begins with the word for. Now he's describing how we know. We know, how do we know? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see the good that God intends in Romans 8.28. We read in verse 29 that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate good that we're looking for, that God causes all things to work together for that purpose, that we would grow to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. Tolkien once wrote, no man can estimate what is really happening at the present. All we do know, and that to a large extent by direct experience, is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain, preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. Well, let's finish our time here back in 2 Peter. Flip back to 2 Peter 3. And let's end the way Peter ends this section here. He had, just, he had just written where we stopped that the Lord is not slow, in verse 9, about his promise. He's patient with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God 
on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Meaning, regard his delay, his waiting, this gap of time that we're in while we tolerate the evil in our culture. Regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. He waits so that many people can come to Christ. Well, as we bow together in prayer, I want to read to you from John chapter 16. This is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson in his uh, paraphrase called The Message. So would you pray with me? Just bow your head, and I'll begin our prayer with John 16, verse 21 to 23. It says this, When a woman gives birth, she has a hard time. There's no getting around it. But when the baby is born, there is joy in the birth. This new life in the world wipes out memory of the pain. The sadness you have right now is similar to that pain. But the coming joy is also similar. When I see you again, Jesus says, you'll be full of joy. And it will be a joy no one can rob from you. You will no longer be so full of questions. Father, we are full of questions right now. Most of them begin with the word why. It's um, impossible for us to know that answer as you reveal to Habakkuk, as you reveal to Job. The why is because we don't know the plan. We can't understand or fathom a mind that is as high as the heavens are above the earth. So high are your thoughts above our thoughts. And even more befuddling is Jesus' question from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Gospels record no answer to that. It is inexplicable in our minds as well how that moment could actually occur. But it did, and we're so grateful it did. Because in that moment of his death on the cross, the most evil act brought about the most righteous potential for any who would believe in Jesus. And Lord, each of us who have believed, pray for anyone who is here this morning that is testing the patience of God by continuing to reject Jesus Christ. Open their heart in this moment to receive the forgiveness, the salvation that has been paid for by Christ, and may they believe in him and have eternal life. And for those of us, Father, who have placed our faith in you and who wrestle uh, like Habakkuk, like Job, uh, like Peter, with the evil in the world, Broaden our perspective to remember you have dealt with it. You promised to deal with it again. And the only reason you delay is so that many people may come to repentance and believe in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. You know, I'm so glad that God's Word doesn't leave us groping in the dark when we ask these hard but obvious questions about God's goodness and light of the evil around us. Why does God allow evil in the world? I love the simple answer. It's profound and yet easy. He allows it so that we may choose good. And ultimately, that we may choose Christ. Well, next week we get a real practical message with our podcast talking about how to make the most of the opportunity that we have right now in life. That's next. Until then, live the Bible. Live the Bible.